Silence is golden, especially when it comes to brakes. That's why Napa Silent Guard are built to be one of the smoothest and most quiet brakes on the market. Made with fiber-reinforced shims that eliminate noise for the life of the pad. Rubber-coated hardware for a better fit and quality design that meets and exceeds OE performance. Silent Guard brakes deliver the stopping power drivers demand. Available now at Napa locations nationwide. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. How's the uh, jet lag? It's, it's pretty bad. Actually, Europe man. is like plus so, eight, plus nine. I, I, yeah, like I and look, this is another one of those things where you feel age a little bit. But uh, I uh, we were gone for two weeks, right? So the first night I woke up at three in the morning was just up, mm-hmm. and now I'm on day three and I've gotten it up to five. Oh, that's which pretty is good. Basically, that's uh, like I'm it. usually pretty early, so yeah. I'm almost there. Yeah, know? I'm w- I'm with you. The uh, the baby had us up at three last night, but we fell back asleep. Eventually. Yes, baby's a good plan to be able to manage jet lag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just yeah, anything. Yeah, but listen, it's a permanent jet lag. As yeah. long as the Chateau Neuf de Pop is still coursing through uh, your veins. Yeah, it, it really is. Did you, my wine intake, let's just say, went up dramatically. Like. As it should. Yeah, my 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 oldest daughter uh, said to me finally uh, towards the end because uh, towards the end I was drinking more wine too because uh-huh. it was I was about to lose access to yeah. it. You know? Yeah, right. Um, and she's like, "Daddy, if you keep drinking wine, you're gonna get drunk." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? "What? Daddy, why are your teeth purple? <laughs> yeah, don't worry yeah, about yeah. it." <laughs> I was like, "I was like, don't worry." Oh man, I can't wait to get scolded by my kids. Yeah, no, I know. It's like it's, it's, it's just what happens when they get to be about it. Very smart questions yeah. and uh, insights. Listen, I'm very glad you're back because we got a lot to talk about today. Uh, while you were gone, Ben, you might have noticed there was a huge leak of uh, highly classified national security documents yes, causing yeah. problems across the globe. And one of those days you're glad you're not working there. So yeah. glad. Yeah. So glad. Uh, the Biden administration released an after action report on the Afghanistan withdrawal, which was interesting. So we're going to tell you guys what it says, because I know you're not reading 12 pages out there, yeah. folks. It's OK. We did it for you. Uh, lots of people are pissed at French President Emmanuel Macron's <laughs> yeah. trip to China. Uh, President Biden is very excited about his trip to Ireland and Northern Ireland. There's some scary tensions in Israel. Uh, we got some sports washing by the Saudis, and Twitter will not stop doing stupid stuff, and we have to talk about it. And then, Ben, you did our interview today. What are listeners going to hear? Uh, yeah, so I talked to Valerie Hopkins, who's an uh, uh, international reporter for the New York Times and uh, has been based or, or reporting from Russia, uh, Russia and Ukraine, but uh, including Russia, is friends with Evan Gurkovich, the Wall Street Journal reporter uh, yeah. who was detained. So we talk about what it's like to be a reporter uh, in Russia since the war started. Um, we talk a lot about Evan and what kind of guy he was, um, how it feels to see him in the state he's in, the questions that you know news organizations and journalists now have to face about how to report on Russia, whether to have people there. Mm -hmm. And then we also talk a little bit about Russian opinion. Like she had been focused on that. She'd been out um, when she was in Russia talking to Russians, you know, giving a more nuanced picture of the the variety of opinions about the war in Russia, Mm -hmm. which we don't hear much about. So great interview and uh, really important story that we're going to have to follow, which is, you know, her point basically is this arrest, you know, uh, is tragic above all for Evan and his family, but it's also just if we lose access to you know, what's already a fairly incomplete picture mm-hmm. of what's going on in Russia, that would be a huge loss to, to the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, listen, I have enormous respect for any reporter still doing reporting out of Russia that's at a Western news outlet, but I personally would get the hell out of there. Yeah, I mean, it just, um, it, it, and part of what's so extraordinary is that like during the Cold War, like 
there were reporters in the Soviet Union, and yeah. it's more dangerous now yeah. uh, than last it time, was like in the Cold War. Which last time crazy. this happened was 1986. Yeah, it's like a U.S. news reporter was accused of being a spy, and he was, you know, she he was released in a couple of weeks. Yeah, like uh, 11 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. terrible. Um, well, I'm very excited to listen to that, and uh, grateful to her for joining the show. Yeah. So, our first topic today, Ben, is this massive leak of classified information and. Some news reports are already saying this could be worse than the Snowden disclosures. Mm -hmm. uh, seems a little premature and hyperbolic yeah, 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 to yeah, me. It's yeah. like two playbooks. But uh, I guess time will tell. The bigger question is, Ben, do you think this is the intelligence community's Katrina? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't used, we haven't dusted that one off. Uh, felt good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Felt good. good. Felt good. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the origin of the documents, or at least what we know about the origin of the documents, yeah. so we can dig into what they say. So the New York Times first reported on the existence of this leak last week after five documents appeared on a Russian Telegram channel. That's a social media channel, very popular in Russia. Uh, news reports say there's about 100 documents total. The U.S. can't confirm that, though. The majority of the documents appear to be dated from February and March and were first posted online on Discord, which is a social media platform with chat rooms and stuff that was popularized by gamers. Specifically, they were posted on a Discord channel focused on Minecraft. Is that a game that's popular in your house? No, we've kept it. Uh, it's not in the house yet. Okay. Yeah, my kids are aware of it and, and they're Minecraft curious, but yeah. it's not anything against Minecraft. It's just more like waiting for them to Yeah, it's just like a gaming. super popular yeah. kind of like mini metaverse. Oh, I played it a little bit. It's just kind of, you know, but I, I'm not much of a gamer. So. Okay. Okay. Well, if you'd been on the right Discord, you could have yeah. got these <laughs> yeah, dots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, they also popped up on a site, uh, Discord channel for fans of a Filipino YouTuber. From there, they hopped to 4chan, Telegram, everywhere else. So the documents themselves appear to be briefing materials prepared for the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They primarily focus on the war in Ukraine, but touch on a number of additional topics and draw on reporting from across the intelligence community, including the CIA. The documents looked like they were printed and photographed and then uploaded that way. It wasn't some like leak on a thumb drive or something. Because in the photos, you can see like a box for somebody's hunting rifle, gorilla glue, like some weird things. Yeah. So. Ben, the best case scenario here seems to be that someone got access to, photographed, and uploaded a single day's Intel yeah. briefing book that had prepared for General Milley and the Joint Chiefs of yeah. Staff. Someone lost a briefing book. Yeah. That like so, you know, the job of General Milley and his team, they provide the president military advice. It would make sense that the contents would focus on Ukraine and Russia, but also include other topics. Cause you imagine Milley being like, Hey, what, what's going on yeah. in Israel? Yeah. Can I get a briefing on that, you know, protest thing? Um the problem with the best case scenario is it's still very bad yeah. because Millie gets like really good, high yeah. sensitive intelligence. The worst case scenario could be that someone had or has ongoing access to these joint staff briefing books. There may be a bunch more information online or the joint staff got hacked by a foreign actor. Uh, Bellingcat, which is an investigative journalism group that specializes in open source intelligence collection, talked to sources who claim that many more documents were leaked over the past few weeks in another Discord channel called Thug Shaker Central which is one I know you also frequent. Yeah, yeah. But Bellingcat could not confirm this because the Thug Shaker channel was deleted. So this is why like John Kirby, our, our friend and former colleague who's now the NSC spokesman, uh, has been saying bluntly, like, we don't know. We don't know yeah. if this leak has been plugged. We don't know exactly what's out there. Like, this is, by the way, why John is kind of rare in spokesman circles. He's just like candid about what yeah, we don't yeah, know. Yeah. Um, so what I do know, Ben, is they are taking this very seriously. Uh, General Austin referred the matter to the Department of Justice for a criminal investigation. The Pentagon is locked down and limited access to intelligence. They're trying to figure out how the leak happened. Again, sorry for the long wind up there. Uh, first question for you, Ben. How much PTSD did reading about this give you over the Oh, weekend? my God. I mean, the Snowden, yeah, I mean, uh, it gave me massive Snowden. Uh, I mean, well, we had, first, we had the WikiLeaks disclosures of like mm -hmm. every 
you know, cable in the U.S. State Department, it seemed like. Then we had the Snowden disclosures in 2013. And it was we, like a sh- fine shot of the move to pop, you know? It's like starts oh, with the WikiLeaks yeah. and then notes of lingering. And, and then 2016, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, the 2016 election stuff. So, oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it did, actually, before we get into the individual documents, like the reason that is really important to, to reflect back on is the problem, this is a, this thus far appears to be a very different kind of issue mm-hmm. in the sense that, what Snowden had and was leaking were kind of the the wiring, the plumbing, if you will, like yep. how we collect intelligence, which has its own pretty big risks because once that's out in the world, it becomes harder. You know, w- whether you agree with Snowden or not about uh, mass surveillance, um, it you know foreign governments could obviously reverse engineer. Okay, this is how they do that. We'll patch this and mm-hmm. try to keep them out. And so that was like a structural leak of you know like the diagram of the house. Mm-hmm. You know exactly. Um, what this appears to be is, you know, like, I don't want to say the crown jewels, but like the really good stuff yeah. uh, that is the end product. PDB adjacent. Yes, that is the end product of the intelligence community. So instead of the diagram of the house, you know, this is like the really expensive stuff inside mm-hmm. <laughs> that you can break in and take. And because this is, uh, you know, this is like to the joint, you, you mentioned General Milley, like, the Joint Chiefs of Staff is, this isn't necessarily General Milley's personal briefing. It could be. But I think what people have to understand is like a lot of people get access to, you know, like the PDB, for instance. Like I got the PDB. Um, so did, like, I think at the end of the day, like probably dozens of people, even though that's the president's yep. brief, right? So the people that work at the Joint Staff also have access to this. So yeah, there's a ton of them too. Yeah, there's and that's a pretty big, you know, operation that they run over there. Um, but the problem with it is that on any at any given day, what's in that briefing is the best stuff, right? It's curated by the intelligence community. Here's what we think you need to know now about the most important things happening in the world. And so the problem is this stuff appears to be really good stuff. And that, you know, can be reverse engineered to like how did you acquire this data or what does the U.S. know about that we can patch. But it also just puts out a lot of the U.S. government's thinking on things in ways that are going to have long-lasting repercussions with some relationships with other countries we can get into. Yeah, and I'm sure the information that goes to Millie or the information that ends up in the PDB is a lot less reluctant to say how we got the information, right? Like this was signals intelligence collected on a senior Mossad agent, for example, whereas a product that was going a little wider to a bigger distribution list, it might just say reliable intelligence on Mossad thinking suggests blah, 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 right? To sort of like fuzz it up. Yeah, or some parentheses with a bunch of letters that, you know, like, (laughs) um, but but yeah, I, I, I think that the, the the what they could do, for instance, though, is that um, they could say you're Russia, right? They could read the documents and kind of figure out what the U.S. has penetrated on their side, yeah. you know, and then they could try to go purge people or patch that or set up new structures to avoid yeah. routing information that way. Now, what we should also say is like there's so much penetration and there's so much disinformation that this stuff may be less valuable than it might have been five or 10 years ago. Absolutely. Know? Absolutely. So well, I want to get into the Russia t- stuff in particular, because that does seem like the most sensitive piece. But before we do that, there's been lots of interesting forensics happening to try to figure out the source of the leak. So I saw Reuters noted that the documents only went to American consumers. They were marked no foreign, which yeah. suggests that it would have uh, couldn't have been like, you know, someone in the five eyes, like a liaison partner, the British yeah. service or something. But- 
Alex Ward at Politico noticed that the documents were printed on something called A4 paper, which apparently is like the standard paper used abroad, but not in the United States. We got lots of like open source intrigue. Um, <laughs> at least one document was edited in a way to make it look better for the Russian government. Uh, the correct version, the real version seems to have been posted in one place, but someone changed it to understate Russian casualties when they posted on Telegram. That was interesting, but it was sort of shittily done. So people don't think it was a state actor. So we should say this is because this is a really interesting question, because I've been, you know, like if you're you're seeing these documents being reported on and it's possible that there's some forgeries, too, yeah. like that, that, that people now know that people think that there's leaked documents. So let's make some new ones and put yeah. them out. Yeah. Or or it could be that there's a document that, yeah, like you said, like the Russian one that, that d- turns the dial in one direction or another. And that's part of what part of the communications challenge for the U.S. government is you don't want to get in the position of confirming documents, right. but at the same time, you might want to shoot down something. If you see something that's a fabrication, You might your, your instinct is going to be to shoot that down. But if you start denying that certain documents are true, but not others, you're kind of confirming that. So this is the challenge that the, the White worst. House has. The worst. Um, and I, th- I think that the best thing to do is kind of what John Kirby's doing, right? Tell people what you don't know you don't get in the practice of adjudicating every individual document, but you know you have to figure out some ways, probably at some point, to 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 point out stuff that is total forgery, and that's difficult. Yeah, Trump will say these all came from Hunter's laptop. Yeah. Uh, two other quick things: so the Guardian reported. Do we know they didn't? We do not know that yeah. they didn't. <laughs> uh, the Guardian reported that the documents that were leaked in Discord uh, initially seemed to be part. Uh, of an argument between two users and one of them used them to win an argument about the war in Ukraine, (laughs) according (laughs) to these open source analysts. And this leak isn't the first time that sensitive documents have shown up uh, in a gaming-related server. The Wall Street Journal was reporting on this. Last year, a player in the War Thunder uh, military vehicle combat game posted real classified information about British tanks. And then another time, a user posted classified information about a French tank because they wanted to push the game to be more accurate about the tank's real capabilities. So, I mean, it would be pretty amazing if there is just like a hack because these gamers, you know, want to like enhance their gaming experience. Yeah, they're like, the little Clark tank is not going fast enough. I think that what's partly telling is it does seem like these documents were out there for a while without the U.S. government knowing it, right? Maybe months, yeah. And the reason that's interesting is because there's such a world of intelligence disinformation campaigns and everybody's inventing fake documents or you know, AI produced the kind of shit you send me, like <laughs> deep, deep fake uh, right. voices and stuff like that, that actually it might be hard to be like, oh, wait, shit, actually that's, that is our stuff, yeah. you know, yeah. um, that, that it does speak to how that, that, that scenario would have been impossible a decade ago. It's We're wild. in a, just a totally new world. Top of the line, British and French tank specs on some gaming server because the people want it to be more realistic. Um, so you mentioned the, the, Intel on Russian military movements and Ukrainian military movements. That, in my opinion, seems to be the most uh, worrisome. So there was reportedly detail in these documents about intercepted communications within the FSB, the Russian intelligence service. There's details of how 
the Russian defense ministry deliberating on things. There's granular Russian planning about how to counter Western tanks. There's detail about U.S. collection on Russian military targeting, which apparently yeah. we passed off to the Ukrainians to protect them. There's also information about anti-Western Russian propaganda operations in Africa, what the Wagner mercenary group is up to all over the world. Some of this intel, again, talks about interceptive communications. There's also lots of collection on the Ukrainian government and military. There are details about their S-300 air defense systems running low on munitions and what date they might run out. That's not great. There's debates within the Ukrainian government about military operations and tactics in Bakhmut, uh, that town in, in the Donbass that's been hard fought over the last few months. So Ben, again, like if this is, you know, the best case scenario where this is one day's briefing book that somehow got out, I guess the good news is that the intelligence itself is a little older. It's a little less actionable. The bad news, as you said earlier, is the Russians should be able to adapt to prevent, you know, this stuff from getting intercepted in the future. But I'm also kind of confused because clearly the U.S. has been all over their communications and movements for a while. They've the Biden administration has aggressively declassified stuff to release it. So it's just hard for me to kind of get my mind around like a damage assessment. The Ukrainian stuff seems very embarrassing. And I guess everyone yeah, just it, sucks it up. But it's just like, look, I sometimes these things are not as bad as they seem. And, and, and so here I'll devil's advocate at being because like, you know, because I was asked like a couple of times about like, oh, the, the actual assessment of the Ukrainian military is it's more degraded and. People know that. Everyone like, the Russians that. know that. They're of fighting course. the Ukrainian military. Right. Like so so sometimes that yeah, is it, do you want that broadcast? No, but we've been talking on this podcast for weeks about how Zelensky's been basically just pounding the table demanding weapons because they're running out of ammo. Mm-hmm. Like people know that, right? That's one one aspect of this. I think on the Russian side, I was struck by how broad the coverage is, but then to speculate here, and I'm just speculating and looking at this stuff. You have to think that as 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 Russia's being driven down this path of madness of invading um, uh, invading Ukraine, that there are people in that system that are playing ball with the U.S. because mm-hmm. they don't like what they're seeing. You know, like I I and I don't know that to be true, but like it's so broad, yeah. and I I just have to think that there's some people there, like you know, who 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 probably are like. You know, first of all, when you're fighting a war, your your comms are much more vulnerable. Exactly. Right? Like, you, you know, you've got to communicate up and down a chain of command. So it's easier to intercept stuff. And also you have people that are against the war and more likely to pass information. So I don't know that you can patch all that is my point. You know? Yeah. Uh, no, that's a really good point because, you know, we've been reading all these stories about, you know, Russian troops who didn't know they're going to Ukraine in the yeah. first place, winding up in like the Donbass and just using yeah. their personal cell phones yeah. and yeah. getting targeted. Like you have to think that kind of like desperation extends up the food chain, at least somewhat. And somewhat. Can be easily yeah. picked off. Yeah. So I, sometimes like the, the, you know, yes, it's not good. You don't want this stuff out there. But where, where this stuff has a longer tail is usually if like some of the stuff, like embarrassing stuff about Israel or Turkey or or Egypt or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, other U.S. partners that, that, it, that, that's why the WikiLeaks stuff was so damaging, the diplomatic cables. It wasn't like sense of collection, but it was like really 
embarrassing, uh, you know, and usually correct <laughs> judgments about the governments that they, yeah. these people were dealing with. In WikiLeaks, we pissed off every country. Yeah, every country. This yeah. one, it seems to be slick. So the other sort of topics included deliberations in South Korea about whether to give the U.S. Uh, munitions to help replenish our stockpiles, given South Korea's concerns that they could wind up in Ukraine. This one is extremely awkward since uh, Biden is hosting the president of South Korea for a state dinner on April 26th. Uh, president Yoon will also address a joint session of Congress during that visit because we're commemorating the 70th anniversary of the alliance between the U.S. and Korea. So tough timing there. Yeah. There was intelligence. Kind of got ahead of the deliverable announcement. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the intelligence uh, said the Mossad, Israel's version of the CIA, advocated for its staff and Israeli citizens to protest the new judicial reforms. Yeah. This one got an angry denial and denunciation from Bibi Netanyahu and his government. Annoyingly, it folds into Bibi's idiot son's conspiracy theories. Deep state. That yeah. the protests are the deep state, the protests of the State Department. It did seem like when I read that one, it could have been a garble. The, the Intel report was sort of based off like what former public Mossad leaders had yeah, said. Yeah, I mean, it could basically be that like U.S. analysts are judging that like Mossad people don't like what BB's doing right. and there's a bunch of former people, you know, yeah. it could have been, the dial could have been turned up a bit. Yeah, I, I did, put it this way, it didn't suggest, in looking at it, it didn't seem like the Mossad was like running like a covert op to, no. to, to have protests, which is how the sensational version of it came out. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then there was a report uh, alleging that uh, Egypt secretly planned to covertly ship 40,000 rockets to Russia. That report was allegedly based off of intercepted communications between President Sisi and his military officials. Yeah, that one seemed pretty alarming. <laughs> That's a big deal. Yeah, that seemed like a big fucking deal. That's a real yeah. problem. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a huge fucking problem. This is the second largest recipient of U.S. military assistance in the world after Israel. Already, we shouldn't be providing it. You, know, you and I are both opposed to it on human rights grounds. But if these guys are shipping rockets to Russia... To, to fight a war that we say is the number one foreign policy right of the United States. Can we can we finally cut these guys off? Yeah, Egypt? yeah. yeah. Uh, here's another one you'll like, Ben. There was an AP report I just saw about an intelligence report saying Russia had convinced the UAE to get their intel services to work against the US and the UK. Yeah. Interesting. Well, and I do think there's something to this Egypt and UAE one, which is, and again, if, they, if these are accurate documents, but they <laughs> say they have the ring of truth, you mm-hmm. know. Um, is look, we've been looking at this question of the the Saudis, the Emiratis, and add, we should have added the Egyptians to that. They, they usually try to avoid scrutiny like this. But this, you know, when you are framing the war in Ukraine correctly, in my judgment, so I, this I agree with the Biden administration on their framing as a battle between democracy and autocracy. Well, these are autocracies in Egypt and Saudi Arabia yeah. and the Emirates. And what these documents seem to suggest is, just what we've been talking about in this podcast for a while. Like, it seems like they're more in the autocratic camp, put it this way, than they are in our camp. Yeah. So I I guess, like, I don't think anyone would argue that U.S. intelligence collection on Russian military movements and deliberations is anything but, like, makes total sense. Yeah. Good use of time and money, right? There is this separate set of collection on, like, friends and frenemies. The South Koreans, the Israelis, the Egyptians, the UAE. I guess what I'm starting to wonder is, do you think... This is still like legitimate collection. Are, are we getting enough insight from these intelligence products that it's worth the inevitable fallout when something like this leaks? Because it's happening over and over and over again. It seems like we're at a place where like we're just incapable of protecting U.S. secrets. That's a really good point because, you know, I felt like this by the end of the Obama administration, which is, a, you know, because ultimately what was a pain in the ass too in the White House is like, 
somehow you're accountable for something that like, what the hell were we supposed to do to prevent leaks of stuff? But um, each leak is corrected as if it's the last, going to yeah. be the last one. Um, and yet this has just you know happened on repeat. And to your point, like, no, I'm not sure it is worth it. I mean, like, w- look, we should be able to make judgments about the South Koreans. Absolutely, we should be able to have, like, analysis of South Korean decision-making intentions. Like, That's the State Department, you can't, right? Yeah, yeah, you can't ask the U.S. government to not like, have, like, be trying to figure out what an ally is going to decide to do, right? Because that's part of the job of government. Um, but I would argue that oftentimes, like, a good diplomacy and having broad contacts in the South Korean government and South Korean society uh, that, are, that are not, like, you know, secret, but are just, like, the business of, of interacting with a partner can usually tell you what you need to know. Yeah, like a mean, really good ambassador. Yeah. Now, knows a lot of people. Yeah. Takes a lot of meetings. Well, there you go. And, and diplomats who get out, you yeah. know, in, in a place like South Korea, they can get out. Now, the the flip side of that is like there are these places like South Korea that are a, like, I think, viewed a little differently than others because like a war could break out, you know, like a, that's true between North Korea and South Korea. That's very true. And, and, th- you need that then all of a sudden you want to know everything, right? Yeah, we got 27,500 um, U.S. troops yeah, sitting there. Yeah, so I think it's hard to ask the U.S. government to not kind of turn the – and I'm not revealing anything. but no, like, that's a really good point. It's just like a, a little different. But but in general, default, like, yeah, I think uh, you want a relationship of trust with a country like South Korea. And, and you, can, you should be able to learn the most important stuff you need to know by going in through the front door. Yeah. So what, what seems like going to happen, DOJ – will prosecute the shit out of this, or at least investigate it. Sounds like the Department of Defense is locking down distribution of intelligence. I'm sure they might make long-term decisions to really, really limit sort of the most um, sophisticated or sensitive intelligence products that go out. But, you know, like you and I were sitting in the White House, right? I don't think you can patch it, yeah. Like, there... I doubt you ever received a briefing that was like, hey, by the way, we're uh, we're spying on Angela Merkel's cell phone. Or who knows if no, Obama I never did. ever did. I never did, yeah, right? yeah. And it's like, I'm sure if you told Obama, hey, do you want to spy on Angela Merkel's personal he cell phone no. or no? He yeah, said, he absolutely said no. not. Yeah. But this, this, there's this sort of, there is a deep state that kind of exists. It's not like evil and nefarious. It's just it's this monolithic yeah, thing. Yeah, no, we've talked about this. Like, But at the end of the day, like again, even the, the precisely because it is like the presidential daily briefing, it's not raw intelligence. Like, this is a hard thing for people to understand. This is not like, here's a 50-page transcript that we intercepted. It's like a summary of what we think is happening somewhere. Right. That you sometimes don't have any idea where that you can ask, well, where'd we learn this, you know? And and so the capacity to kind of limit distribution, I don't think that fixes it. I mean, the smartest thing they did is when they shifted from paper to tablets, right? Because there you can do things like, you know, if that tablet leaves a room, it's wiped, you know, like nothing's on it, you know, whereas if you leave a binder Generally. of documents, yeah, yeah, yeah. like it, in Starbucks, it's you know, at, uh, the Minecraft uh, guys. Have yeah. It. Or the Minecraft guy figures out what you're reading over there and starts taking pictures of, you know, like, so like, I, I think the physical di- dissemination of paper, um, that makes a lot of sense. But in terms of like restricting who knows something, I mean, anybody who works in general, it's, 
Millie's office or anybody's on the joint chat, you know, any of the joint chiefs or any, you know, like somebody was supposed people. to take a burn bag out and actually burn it, but decided not to, right? Like, yeah, th- these intelligence products go to human beings, yeah, right? They're the end user. Some of them are corrupt, some of them are uh, irresponsible. Like, it's people you can accidentally lose a document, it yeah. happens. But th- th- there are, and this is the, where the deep state exists, <laughs> like, um, th- don't at me, um. I don't know if like Ben Wittes or something, but like, <laughs> like um, the, the uh, I don't, I didn't learn like e- even as a high level consumer intelligence, like much about like our nuclear weapons, you know, like they, they don't either. just, I you don't like get the job and they I come wouldn't ask. tell you exactly. That's the point is there is a lot of stuff that's very sensitive in the U.S. government. That just doesn't travel about. Yeah, it's not, a, it's not uh, one of those restaurants where they push around a cart. Yeah, and a yeah, you point like, oh, exactly. That, you know? that. They um, read you into things if you have a need to if know. You need to know it. And the thing about this file, uh, if it was a file, is that this was the stuff that was most present. And and again, how can these people do their jobs if they don't know the state of play in Bakhmut? You know, like yeah. how if and if someone's in charge of arming the Ukrainian military. It's not just like it's not General Milley can just do that without reading in other people. Like the a lot of people in the U.S. government need to know that Ukraine is running low on X, Y, and Z because it's their job to fucking get them X, Y, and Z. So I don't think there's some answer. This is why you're right about like these leaks will keep happening, where you can restrict this to like five people reading about the state of play in Bakhmut. Like thousands of people in the U.S. government need to know what the state of play is in Bakhmut. Yeah, yeah. Here's my conclusion. If you see anyone uh, on the comm staff at the NSC, if you see John Kirby, if you see the Defense Department, press people, maybe the State Department, buy him a drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> they didn't make this mess, yeah. but they're they're cleaning it up. So are diplomats. Yeah, Avril Haines, like Avril the director Haines. of national intelligence. Yeah. I, I pour one out for everyone. Pour one out. Yeah. For yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Uh, okay, Ben. Well, I guess we're just going to stick with uh, challenges with intelligence here. Let's yeah. turn to Afghanistan. Yeah. Because the administration, the Biden team, released uh, a very interesting 12-page report on the causes and lessons learned from the Afghanistan withdrawal. Just a couple things that jumped out at me. So. It had a lot of detail about how much the Trump administration policies completely screwed them and, and set them down a, a tough path in terms of the eventual outcome. We knew a lot of this, but seeing it together was compelling. So, for example, Trump drew down to 2,500 troops right before he left office, like January 2021. There was zero plan given by his team to the Biden team for how to get the rest of the people out, despite the fact that they kind of like handed them this yeah. bag. The report says when Biden took office, quote, The Taliban were in the strongest military position that they had been in since 2001, controlling or contesting nearly half the country. Again, I think we knew that, but it's compelling to hear it in the sort of like simple terms. Yeah. They assessed that if Biden broke the withdrawal timeline, U.S. troops would have been attacked and that the U.S. would have needed to send more troops back to Afghanistan to fight back. Again, we knew that. Trump allowed a backlog of over 18,000 SIV visa applicants. Those are the special visas for Afghans who helped the U.S. out in some way. Um, it did talk about sort of lessons learned from Afghanistan, contingency planning and communications in evacuations, like what happened in Afghanistan and how they applied those in Ukraine and Ethiopia. The conclusion to the document was basically this. Ultimately, after more than 20 years, more than $2 trillion in standing up an Afghan army of 300,000 soldiers, the speed and ease with which the Taliban took control of Afghanistan suggests that there was no scenario except a permanent and significantly expanded U.S. military presence that would have changed the trajectory. It's hard to argue with that kind of like big picture take. Yeah, no, look, I, I clearly they're trying to get ahead of all these congressional investigations that are you yeah. know, gathering steam. And correctly, they want to kind of 
focus people on a couple of big points. One, that Trump made this deal and kind of set this whole thing in motion. And two, that that last point that like absent, you know, th- there wasn't like this middle option of like, if we just kept Bagram, everything would have been fine. Yeah, muddle through. Um, that, that basically absent the U.S. kind of re- committing to Afghanistan and probably increasing resources, the the trajectory was kind of where it was going to go. So um, so if you're going to withdraw, you might as well withdraw. Yeah. Um, now, there was, and that's right, and, and it's important for them to be framing everything that's going to be coming out. There's an Afghanistan commission that's looking at the whole history of the war, which is, I think, a very useful exercise. Definitely. And probably a lot of sensationalist Republican gotcha oversight. There, there was stuff on, like, the evacuation. They just don't want to concede that it could have been done better. You know, this is and, what bothers me. And too. It, it bothers me because they've already lost that argument. So I don't know who they think they're going to convince that the evacuation itself went well. They 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 basically made recommendations like, well, next time this happens, we should begin it sooner. But like, that's kind of a weird recommendation because like I hope there's not a next time that like we, right, yeah. we a twenty year war ends like that. So. They they still seem to be kind of trying to avoid just saying, hey, we probably should have begun evacuating more people sooner. Like, you know, instead it was kind of forward looking like next time, maybe we should evacuate people sooner. And so that 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 that's where I, I think they're still too defensive about yeah. what was a shitty situation, um, but one where, you know, basically everybody's judgment from veterans who are getting people out to civil society was you should have started this clock earlier. We were telling you to do that. And and that leads to a, a comment I have about the oversight, but I don't know if you-, you No, I, I, I had the same thought you did, which was that I have no doubt, like they talk about all this planning that went into the eventual evacuation and yeah. all, you know, all this you know preparation that ultimately allowed them to get what is like 124,000 people out of the country, but it doesn't address the fact that it wasn't necessarily the right people that we got out, right? Yeah. Like we promised to help all these people and a lot of them were left behind. And, you know, for example, also in the report, Ben- And where talk, are those 124,000 people? Right. I mean, and not, yeah. we're not talking Americans. Yeah, we're yeah, talking about yeah. like people who helped U.S. military. Yeah. And they talked about how the U.S. went from issuing 100 SIV, those are the special visas, a week in March to more than 1,000 a week in July. No doubt Joe Biden deserves enormous credit for ramping that process back up. But like you do the math and you realize- yeah, that's nothing. It, it wasn't it's like- a drop in the ocean. You should have- that that's an argument to delay the withdrawal timeline. I think. Yes, exactly. The point is that they 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 needed a different structural approach to evacuating people from the moment that he announced that we were leaving. You know, and again, I get all the reasons why. Right. And in fairness, they, they're like, look, we didn't want to like spook people, precipitate gone, a collapse. Yeah, yeah. But like that's the crit- critique. So look, and they they may want to continue to contest that, and that's entirely their right. I just I don't know that that who they're convincing of that, you know? Yeah. And so better sometimes to kind of figure out where you're going to acknowledge. Now, th- this plays into the oversight question because the other thing I saw that that we didn't talk about, but like Tony Blinken was testifying and there's a dissent cable, right? So mm-hmm. the State Department has a process by which people can dissent from decisions. And the Republicans have their eyes on a, a embassy cobble. Did they file a dissent cable to to basically what was ha- to warn that this place is going to collapse and don't I'm don't do sure this. they did well they did and yeah. so they they want that document and Tony's saying well actually the 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 integrity of the dissentional is that people can air their views he's totally correct Tony's absolutely right in saying we set up this channel so that people could provide advice without fear that someday might end up you know what I don't agree with 
<laughs> like, get it out. Well, to get it out. Like we talked about this. The more drama you create around a document, the, the they will get that document. Yes. I guarantee you that no they doubt. will get that document. Six months from now, one year from now, 18 months from now. The more you drag it on, the more drama you create around what's in that document. Totally agree. I, 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 so again, this is a hard learned experience. I, I, I understand all the reasons why you, you, you want to protect your dissent channel or you want to, and I, I don't mean to focus on, pick on Tony. I, I'm just trying to make uh, like a general point that I, I think that- It's a comms point. They're, and, and they're also a little too nervous about this African oversight. Like th- what was good about the 12 page document is that the debate that they should want to have is about, do you still think we should have troops in Afghanistan and Trump is the guy who made the deal with the Taliban, not us, yep. right? The more you create the drama around things like document production or are you cooperating or who's testifying, right. the more the drama is not about the core question of Afghanistan policy and is about like, are you hiding something? The mysteries. So I, I offer this as, as advice. <laughs> I'd offer it privately as well as publicly. Like the more you just say, we have nothing to hide, you know, yes, now there's, it's physically impossible to produce everything Republicans want. And, and I'm not suggesting that, but like, just beware the trap of the Washington drama of Absolutely. drip, drip, drip. I also just think like my big picture view is still that every single president who worked on Afghanistan owns part of this failure. Of course. Like I could make, I could make it argued for every one of them owning yeah. it the most. Bush for invading Iraq and taking his eye off the ball. Obama for listening to the military and doing a counterinsurgency strategy and sending more troops. Trump for cutting this garbage deal. Like Biden for pulling out too quickly. Like in, in some ways, Biden was left... Like he was playing musical chairs yeah. and was the last guy standing. No, that's entirely correct. You know, like, that's and you could say, well, correct. he has the most responsibility. He's been around the longest. No, he was I don't, VP. Yeah, he was I don't in the Senate. Yeah. I, I don't really agree with that. I think we all own it. And I would just say that. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and by the way, I think Americans totally understand that. Like they totally understand that. Um, that that just, just didn't go well. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I- There's no spin in this one. I, there's no spin in this one. Yeah. Uh, also, Ben, in the better late than never category, Congress might finally repeal the Iraq War Authorization. Yeah. So it passed the Senate with a 68 yes votes, but it's going to require a coalition of basically like Democrats and Freedom Caucus types to get through the House. Have you seen anyone articulate an argument in opposition to repealing the Iraq War Authorization? What possible well, argument I think, could there be? You know, we wanted to repeal this like back in the Obama years and... The people, if you pressed on who who actually like wanted to keep it, it's like scary reasons. Like maybe we could use it to attack like Iran or something. Oh God, I don't, of course, you know, like there are weird bank shot arguments or like God damn it. Because actually, like the, the case we were making back then is like even when we had a counter ISIS presence in Iraq, that was actually under the two thousand the original AUMF. You know, the 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 counter Al Qaeda, right. My, my opinion is they should all be repealed get and replaced by new ones. You know, like if we have a reason to go to war against a terrorist organization, get a new one. But I think it, as as meaningless as this feels to people, the reason it is important is it's important to set the precedent that these things end, you know, uh, because the real one that you want to repeal is the post 9-11 one that has been used everywhere. Uh, and again, often on the Obama administration as well as others, it's important to say like, hey, look, we can actually end, end one of these things that we started. Definitely. And also shout out Tim Kaine for uh, oh, man. fighting for this. I really Senator admire Tim Kaine, Virginia. He, he's been on this war power thing forever and I, I, he deserves a lot yeah, of credit. It's a it's lonely, kind of fight. Yeah. lonely fight. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick break. And we come back, we're going to talk about uh, President Macron in Beijing.
Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, Ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crooked world. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash crooked world. All right, Ben. So French President Emmanuel Macron took a three-day trip to China and people are super pissed about it. Uh, he, uh, Macron and Xi Jinping, they had a private dinner. They got out of Beijing. They went to a province. Macron hung out with some students. Before the trip, uh, Macron said he was going to push Xi to do more to end the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But their like six-hour hangout didn't really feel like that. <laughs> didn't move the ball, did it? No, yeah. the communique didn't really like move the ball. Tea either. ceremonies. And, yeah, yeah, they, they like the tea. Kind of a bromance. It, it, they had a bromance vibe. Macron basically, I think he got like a vague assurance that she would call President Zelensky at like some point. TBD. Uh, they didn't seem to publicly discuss Taiwan. And right after Macron left, 
the Chinese military started a series of military exercises where I think they basically encircled Taiwan. Yeah. This was their very petulant response to the president of Taiwan, uh, President Tsai's meetings with Kevin McCarthy in, in, in Latin America. So it seems like Xi's strategy is to sort of peel France off from more hardline uh, European countries who are more critical of China. I, I can't tell if it's working. Macron was accompanied by Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, who got a lot less love. Than well, the, she's than much the more hardline. She's yeah. she's been she's much more focused on human rights and and yeah, she did she get tea. She did not get tea, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or she didn't get the good stuff. Put it that way, yeah. um, not the top shelf tea. So I was going to read you one quote, and then I want to sort of get your gut on on whether these people should be so pissed about this. So. Macron said, he did an interview with Politico where he said the following, uh, the paradox would be that overcome with panic, we believe we are just America's followers. This is about Taiwan. The question Europeans need to answer is, is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take our cue from the US agenda and the Chinese overreaction. So, okay, I get like at face value why people one, don't have a lot of faith in Macron's diplomacy, right? Because he ran around with Putin yeah, before yeah, the Russian invasion. He thought he'd like solved it. Remember the it. picture of him in the hooded sweatshirt, like, you know, racked with pain. Yes. Or, yeah. yeah. And then one of the long table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think he told reporters on one of his flights home from Russia that he'd like solved it. And then Putin just invaded yeah. the next day. Right. So skepticism is, is fair. On the other hand, we just did a big episode on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war where the French were right and we were wrong. Yeah. Not long ago, we had Trump threatening fire and fury in North Korea. It's not hard to see why the Europeans or the French might want a little space from U.S. foreign policy at times, in particular a war with China. Uh, where do you land on the the DC outrage? I don't. Yeah, I I, I um, I'm kind of like in the middle. You know, with with an understanding of Macron's position, which is what I take from this visit is look, if you're in Europe, um, you don't know whether Trump's coming back. Like that's number one. So you want to hedge on the U.S. generally, you know, yeah, like um, reality. because because uh, you just don't know there could be a crazy person running this country in, in, in a couple of years. Um, secondly, like the China issue is nowhere near as, you know, advanced in terms of like viewing China as as like this boogeyman in Europe as is in the U.S., like deep commercial relationships, deep economic relationships. Chancellor Olaf Scholz of Germany went over there with like 100 CEOs uh, before Macron did. So it's also a hedge against like what we call decoupling, this idea that the kind of West, not just the US, but all of our supply chains in certain areas mm -hmm. are going to have to somehow untangle themselves from China. Incredibly complex thing. And the Europeans are like, do we really want to like disadvantage our companies and, and and all this stuff because the Americans have decided that they're, they're getting super hawkish on China. As we pass these like very nationalist climate change tax provisions yeah. and the CHIPS Act. We, you know, we, as we pursue basically this like mercantilist policy here right. that screws European companies. Exactly. So like, I, I don't, do I do I like the image of, of, of Emmanuel Macron kind of soft peddling Taiwan and soft peddling human rights and, and, and kind of giving Xi Jinping a PR win? No. And I think Macron did kind of walk right into the protocol trap that the Chinese set, which is, we make you look like you're literally visiting an emperor, yeah, you know, yeah. like G is the emperor and here's, you know, we're going to allow you to drink tea in this place. And you're, you, you know, they, they appear like they, they lost control of that optic and he should have taken some more opportunities to pointedly criticize the war in Ukraine or to raise issues around human rights the or the Uyghurs. Yeah. Like that's where I fault Macron is on just kind of rolling over generally. 
But I, I do think it's a it's a useful warning to Washington to not assume that the Europeans are going to like march and lockstep behind our China no. policy without us kind of meeting them, you know, in the middle or not, or at least having a, an effort to kind of come come together and figure out a joint policy or like have we really brought them into our thinking on Taiwan? I think it's a, the warning signal is they still have doubts about U.S. credibility because they don't know if Trump's coming back. And even with Biden, I, I think they feel like they haven't been brought along as a part of this China policy. I mean, if you're sitting in Paris, like you're looking at U.S.-China relations and you're seeing a debate over why didn't they kill the balloon faster? Like, <laughs> and, and we look like a bunch of fucking morons with the balloon. <laughs> and never mind the fact, by the way, that like the signature part of our China policy was an AUKUS deal that that cost the French like $80 billion in subs yeah, or something. We, yeah, know? we screwed them so, out of a huge submarine. And then contract. we get pissed that he goes to China. Yeah. I mean, like, so again, like I, I'm not like an Macron apologist because I think he he overcranks everything. It can be he, annoying. He overcranked the bromance with Xi <laughs> yep. and, and at a sensitive time right after Xi had been in Moscow. So there's all kinds of things to criticize Macron for. But the fact of them him going and having it, I, that's normal. And, and and I also think, frankly, the United States needs to be talking to China, too. Yeah. Like, like th- there is a place for diplomacy and engagement even as we're, you know, taking all this confrontational tone. Yeah. Stuff. Uh, I bet we have a lot of listeners in France tweeted us like, how, what's the coverage been like? How's this playing over so in there. Paris? I well, was, well, what, I was did there you during the China visit. Yeah. How'd it look? It, could it, you read it? <laughs> it? I could read some of it with my, uh, my study abroad French. Um, part of what was the story there is that like after Macron like lights this fuse and blows up like French politics with his ramming through his pension. Yeah. It was like, He's trying to rehabilitate himself by playing statesman. Interesting. He's left this like fucking mess to all of his deputies. So they, what they, there was more like it wasn't questioning the assumption of why is he going to China. It was like, what the hell? They come back and mind the story. Hey, bro, you where know? are you going? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Uh, okay, well, but, but I'd be curious what actual French people no, think. Su- that was just my uh, no, it's my, my my South of France uh, Chateau Neuf to pop correspondent. Yeah, please uh, take send yeah. us a copy of yeah. the latest uh, Charlie Hebdo and and whatever yeah. else you're reading. So, uh, okay, well, speaking of statesmen on the global stage, Ben President Biden is on a four day trip to Ireland and the UK. I uh, started in Belfast in Northern Ireland to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which ended 30 years of fighting between Protestants and Catholics and those who wanted Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK and those who wanted Ireland to be one big sovereign state together. Um, This fighting feels so far away to me at this point in time, but it was wild to read that there was an intelligence report about an IRA bomb threat to coincide with Biden's visit. So like tensions are like just under the surface. As we've discussed before, part of the reason these tensions are under the surface or just under the surface is because Brexit nearly upended the Good Friday Agreement uh, many years later. There was, uh, when the UK left the European Union, Northern Ireland came out with it, and no one wanted to see a land border or a big customs check put up between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So Biden goes to the Republic of Ireland later in the week. He's got meetings with the president, the Taoiseach, and uh, he'll address a joint session of the Irish legislature. This visit is very personal for Biden. He's Irish Catholic. I think he's the first Irish Catholic president since Kennedy to visit, maybe first since Kennedy period. Yeah. Uh, he's going to meet with relatives while he's there and visit a cathedral that Biden's great, great, great grandfather helped construct. He sold them the bricks and apparently- and Probably more legit than the Obama relative that we found. Uh, <laughs> Those are some good Remember stories the, Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was some good shit. Yeah, yeah. Ben, are you taking the over or the under on uh, 20 Seamus Haney quotes during the trip Oh my from God, Biden? yeah. Uh, definitely the over. 
Um, and look, I, I like I, 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 everybody loves Ireland in American politics for sure. Um, and so I think it should it, we should allow Joe Biden this moment of just soaking in the adulation, the friendship, the friendliness um, of being in Ireland. It. The Belfast, this is really important. Like I, I remember we went there, and you know, like you could sense like it's like right underneath the surface there. You know, like there, there, they, the, the, there's an agreement on paper, but. There's still a lot of mistrust. So, well, there's, there's still a still, wall between these communities. Yeah, there's still I mean, literally. peace walls, yeah. literally, and the the, the the peace walls are actually not peace walls. They're to keep communities separated. Right. So reinforcing that importance of that agreement, I think, is is badly needed. It's a useful timing, too, given all the recent tension around it. But this with this kind of Windsor agreement that Rishi Sunak has, like there's a, at least a plausible pathway forward. So I think kind of reinvesting in that is important. Um, as a diplomatic achievement, uh, but as as unfinished business. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's face it, this is going to be like a lot of Joe Biden anecdotes and quotes and, uh, you know, uh, my uncle this or my dad this, you know. and It's going to be incredible with like every Irish American politician. Oh, can you imagine the manifest? Can you imagine the number of members of Congress that we're trying to get on this? I was talking thing? to someone on the NSC staff who had gotten bumped off of Air Force One and bumped off of the support plane. And put on a commercial flight because it was just like such a massive entourage. Yeah, yeah, and that that doesn't happen very often. Ireland is like basically a, a domestic campaign stop. <laughs> yeah. like, let's be very honest. You know, like, That's exactly right. Yeah. Um, uh, here's another story we're keeping an eye on. So it is currently the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. During that month, there is a tradition of sorts where Muslim worshippers will stay overnight in the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Al-Aqsa Mosque is this very sacred spiritual site for Muslims, as well as a symbol of resistance for Palestinians. The Israeli government does not approve of or often allow people to stay overnight at the mosque, so they often evict worshippers at times by force. That brings us to last week, where there were some incredibly disturbing videos of Israeli security forces beating the shit out of Palestinian worshippers and firing stun grenades inside the mosque. Hundreds of people were arrested, dozens were hurt. These videos spread like wildfire to the entire Muslim world. Militant groups, most likely Hamas, but we don't know that, responded with rocket fire from Gaza and South Lebanon. Israel responded with airstrikes in Gaza. And just to make things more complicated, Ramadan, Passover, and Easter all overlapped this year. So everyone's trying to visit the the Temple Mount holy sites at the same time. Uh, in the past, one of Bibi's far-right ministers, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who we've talked about yes. a few times, has called for Jews to ascend the Temple Mount. Uh, there is some far-right Jewish activist every year who tries to sacrifice a fucking goat on the yeah, Temple yeah, Mount. Yeah, just to piss people off. Apparently, yeah. that's very inflammatory. I don't totally understand why. I think it's because only Muslims can worship oh, yeah, yeah, at the Temple yeah, Mount, yeah, and this yeah. is like OG worshiping, yeah, yeah, like biblical yeah. worshiping. Yeah, 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 if totally. you kill a goat, totally. if there's any goats listening, let yeah. us know. Uh, also, shout out to you guys for surviving. Long story short... So last week, it felt like this could spiral out of control into a massive war in Gaza, like we saw, what, two years ago? Or South Lebanon. That's or where, South Lebanon. Where, where there hasn't been a war since 2006. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So the Israeli government has halted visits to the Temple Mount by Jewish worshipers and tourists for now to prevent more tensions. Ramadan ends uh, April 20th. So I guess like we're kind of holding our breath until then, but I don't know if there's anything else you're watching here. What I'm watching is because what was interesting about the South Lebanon piece of this is it seemed like Hamas and Hezbollah, which are distinct, obviously, organizations, it seems like some degree of teaming up Coordination, uh, in this yeah. case, which is, you know, a big development in a way. I mean, you know, Hezbollah is a much stronger organization. Yeah, keep me off that group um, chat. Tons of rockets in, in, in southern Lebanon, basically controls southern Lebanon, 
and then you got Hamas and Gaza. That's a two-front war for Israel, right? That's a different thing than just a Gaza war. So one is that. Watch whether Hezbollah and Hamas are going to be more collaborative. Um, but then also just, you know, the introduction of Lebanon was a new angle here. But also just the longer this Israeli government is around, it's a reminder that, like, this could get out of control. At you any know? time. And, and, like, like, the wrong thing could happen at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Like, they're... they're Jewish extremists who wanted to blow it up, you know. I mean, this is what we're. This is how far it could get. Th- this is this thing could catch fire, you know. Like we every day that the people like Ben Gavir are in that government running national security, in, you know, agencies, uh, the capacity for an incident to get out of hand that starts a real war, at least on the scale of the Gaza wars we've seen, but perhaps bigger, is there. Yeah. It's really nerdsome. I asked my friend uh, Yair Rosenberg, who writes for The Atlantic, great writer. Uh, <laughs> these are the kinds of things I DM him. Okay, dumb question. Why is sacrificing a goat on the Temple Mount such a big deal? He wrote me back about 800 words, so yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll read yeah, it yeah, and yeah. Get, get back to you guys <laughs> yeah, for the next yeah. pod. Uh, another thing, Ben. So last year, uh, we I did this mini series with uh, Roger Bennett from Men and Blazers. Uh, it's a little podcast called World Corrupt. It's about the World Cup soccer tournament in Qatar and this trend of sports washing when corrupt autocrats like our friend Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia or companies like Gazprom, the Russian state oil and gas conglomerate, invest in or sponsor teams to burnish their image. Uh, the series was nominated for a Webby. If you want to vote, go to wbby.co slash vote. Vote for World Corrupt in the you know featured I, guest I, category. Do you know I won a Webby? What did you win for? For uh, Missing America. Hell yeah. For uh, Congrats. Yeah, for one of the episodes. You, of you, has everything changed since? Nothing changed. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, help me out. Don't make me- but No, no. It, it's a very satisfying feeling. Don't get me wrong. Like, oh, no, I'm talking to the listeners. Help me out. Yeah, get, no, get me a Webby that's here. That's what I'm saying. You should- Yeah, I wanted a Webby. It was it was very validating. You don't get a lot of podcast validation beyond like the nice re- reviews at the bottom of the iTunes thing, you know? Uh, mostly for so, us, it's just like, hey, you pronounced this wrong. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I get a lot of that. I, I got a very sternly worded email from one- I, I've continually <laughs> heard about my pronunciation about of- uh, of Kim Jong-un, who I probably just mispronounced it. Uh-huh. Like, someone wrote me, like, a multi-paragraph, just oh, no. rip shit email. I was like, I'm sorry. I gotta tell uh, you guys, listen, it's not on purpose. When I took French, I almost failed out because I just, like, don't hear things yeah, correctly. Yeah. Anyway, wbby.co slash vote. Check it out. So, Ben, by the end of this, the series was ostensibly about Qatar and those games. By the end of it, I was basically concerned that, like, Saudi Arabia is the real sports-washing elephant in the room and about to become the biggest player here. They already purchased uh, an English Premier League team, the Newcastle Bonesaws. Uh, MBS was jealous of the shine Qatar got from hosting. So the Saudis also hired Lionel Messi, who's the GOAT, greatest player of all time, to be their tourism ambassador. Now there are reports that Messi has been offered more than $400 million per year to play in the Saudi Soccer League. This comes as the Saudis are going to compete, doing that in air quotes for those listening. This competition uh, implies fairness and not bribing people. And that's not what I expect will happen here. Uh, They're going to compete for the 2030 World Cup. Cristiano Ronaldo, another star player who was a little past his prime, uh, signed up to play in the Saudi League last year. So it's this growing entity. But I don't know, man. Like, stars feel pretty aligned for, like, 2030 World Cup in fucking Riyadh. Well, because they'll spend, I mean, the Messi salary is indicative of that they'll spend any amount of money. I mean, any amount. they would have given Tiger like what, like a billion dollars to, yeah. you know, he just didn't need it. Um, and it'll be to interesting. Plan the live golf tour. And, and, and the, the thing is, even without that, I mean, like what's interesting is like Messi's currently on Paris Saint Germain, PSG. Qatar basically owns, you know, that yeah, through, team, through right? A card like, out, yeah. yeah. And then the, 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 the uniform is Qatar Airways. So, so what's interesting is that the golf, like soccer, is, is clearly like a status thing 
for these guys and 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 th- there's this kind of takeover happening of uh of of soccer um by 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 gulf countries and if you have bottomless money like you can do that i mean even the messy tourism deal it's like literally like he goes down there and takes a few instagram pictures and they give him like that's ten, tens of millions of dollars that's it and it's know? not officially for the world cup but like obviously you know you're promoting saudi tourism and soccer so like the the subtext is the 2030 games and argentina where messi is from is part of a competing bid yeah yeah i mean I, you know i guess like to be fair it used to be the U.S. <laughs> that had like David Beckham at the end of his career, you know, mm-hmm. uh, here in L.A. But like the difference here, obviously, is like the reason that Mohammed bin Salman uh, is seeking these kinds of uh, ornaments is to kind of change what we think about when we think about him because of what he's done, not just with Khashoggi, but in a lot of ways. And and you just have to keep reminding yourself each time like that this that that's where this money comes from. Yeah. There's an MLS team that I think has offered Messi an ownership stake. A Miami team, In the right? franchise. Yeah, the Miami team. But I don't think they can compete with Saudi money. I mean, who can? I mean, the only thing there is that Miami's like the capital of Latin America in a lot of ways. So he's got this platform down back to, you know. Would you rather live in Miami or Riyadh, bud? Come on. Yeah, Jeddah. Actually, I mean, yeah, that's... He doesn't want to... It's just he's got a, more money than yeah, anyone... Yeah. God, he probably he pays no taxes in Saudi When is it enough enough? You know? Well, that's true, yeah. Uh, okay, last thing before we get to Ben's interview. So we have all spent the last few months watching Elon Musk run Twitter into the ground. He spent $44 billion and then recently valued his own company at $20 billion, So tough. Uh, there was that one hilarious week, Ben, when Twitter Blue was rolled out and we, you could impersonate you know, brands or anybody you wanted yeah. for eight bucks. That was fun. Since then, it's been mostly just whining from <laughs> yeah. people on Twitter with blue check marks about losing their blue verification check marks, even as they pretend they don't care about the check marks and say they're going to quit the site and then come back the next day like nothing ever happened but every once in a while elon and his uh little minions do something capricious and stupid and genuinely damaging like last week when twitter decided to label npr as state affiliated media giving it the same label as state-run propaganda channels like rt in russia that happened even though their own definition of state affiliated media said uh, that organizations with editorial independence like the BBC or NPR are not defined as state media. So Elon is like, he didn't seem to know his own policy. He didn't seem to know that NPR gets less than 1% of its funding from the U.S. government or that the BBC gets its funding from British citizens who are charged a license. He's clearly never been subjected to a week-long pitch drive on Morning Edition. (laughs) (laughs) We could have solved this for you. One tote bag. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Come on. Yeah. What are you doing? That's a really good point. So like... It's just so frustrating to watch these idiots who have like not thought for one minute about these hard issues, kind of learn the facts in real time. And then in the process, just like destroy what was once a pretty helpful way to get news. It's always interesting that these guys like Elon Musk and these general, the general vibe of like the crypto tech bro, like drive by geopolitical experts, like walk constantly right into like what about Putin what aboutism mm-hmm. you know like kind of positions like NPR we have the same label as as Pravda and or as RT you know like uh they they it just always trends in that direction you know yeah wh- why is that i mean is it just like a right wing thing I, it's just a right the just breadcrumbs are just laid in that direction so they just like follow them you know it, it, but it 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 does show it, but just from a business standpoint too like why are you down in those weeds of like how you're labeling NPR? It just shows like the kind of enormous colossal pettiness of this whole enterprise. Yeah, because you wanted to like, you know, 
show the gang at TP USA that you like owned the libs. Yeah, you're you're, you're just you really wanted to dunk on like Terry Gross. <laughs> like, what the fuck is going on? I love NPR. Like, I love Terry. Back Gross. the fuck off, NPR. Okay, yeah. like, and by the way, like, I was in the U.S. government. They, they, state media, shit. Like, I, I never they kicked their like, ass they up kicked and the down. Shit out of us because they were actually smart. Like, hush tones. They actually knew what the fuck they were talking about, and they they'd lull you in with their hush tones, and then they'd like drop the hammer on you. You know, just, like, or Ari Shapiro would have like that really friendly thing but then like by the third question like fuck he just walked me right into a, yeah. the end of a labyrinth yeah know? this super yeah. tall handsome man with Very a lyrical man. voice yeah. just yeah. destroyed me you just yeah. go go watch the sweaty balls as an L <laughs> yeah, tape yeah. and just calm down Elon. just chill out just man. chill out okay we're gonna take a quick break uh and we come back you'll hear ben's interview with valerie hopkins from the new york times about reporting in russia so stick around for that All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Okay, we are very pleased to welcome to Pod Save the World, Valerie Hopkins, who is an international correspondent for The New York Times, who's covered Russia and Ukraine uh, extraordinarily well, bringing stories um, of, of, of how Russians are thinking, uh, how they're experiencing the war, uh, among other things. So, Valerie, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. So, you know, one question I think that is on a lot of people's mind, and we'll get to the arrest of uh, Evan Gershkovich uh, in, in a moment here, but just in terms of being a reporter in Russia since the war started, how has your reporting had to change? Like, what risks are you aware of, both to either yourself or or your sources, um, that has, has, has led you to make adjustments over the course of the last year? Hmm. Um, that's a great question, but I, I, I wouldn't say... Uh that that my reporting's been adjusted in the past year i think that um you know moscow 2021 wasn't exactly you know 
an easy place to report. It obviously became much more difficult after Russia invaded Ukraine. It became much more complicated and, and, and certainly many people didn't feel safe at that time and left. I, I was in Ukraine reporting about Ukraine. So I didn't have to make that decision about leaving. But, uh, when everybody came back, uh, when those, when people did come back, it was in a much smaller group. You know, I think I can count on one hand the number of American reporters we had in Moscow. And I would say it was just more of a constant awareness, uh, that we are under surveillance, which we already were before, um, yeah. that we are being watched and, and followed, especially when we travel outside, uh, that we are being, um, sort of harassed by local media outlets if we travel outside of Moscow as well. And, and in the course of our normal reporting, um, you know, some, uh, every outlet, made different decisions in, in terms of how to respond to the very strict censorship laws that were passed several weeks or not even, you know, less than a week after the war started, you know, things like not being allowed to use the word war, um, not a not being allowed to disseminate any information that wasn't, you know, part of the official ministry of defense's information. Um, you know, when I was dis deciding whether or not I would go back, the discussion I had with my editors was that I don't want to make any compromises about that. I, I don't want to mm, not call a war a war. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want my reporting to be hindered in any way. And I would say probably Evan had the same discussions with his editors. Did you guys? Did you guys talk? Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the you know, handful of American reporters there, and, and did you guys talk to each other about this? I mean, you talk about talking to your editors, but were you, as a Times person, talking to Evan, the journal person, talking to the people who were there for for other Western outlets? Absolutely, um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, it is funny that you know the Times and the Journal are our competitors, but you know, first of all, Evan was in Moscow far longer than I was, and he was always providing me with advice. Um, you know encouraging me to pursue whatever line of, you know, storyline I was pursuing. And, and also, um, it's mo most importantly, you know, with Evan and with other journalists, we sort of shared our experiences, uh, you know, strange things that happened to us in the field, perceptions about what was going on and, and, and mostly sort of, you know, f were frequently commenting on what was happening around us. Right. So, you know, we had a conversation over dinner one night in February, I think, uh, after two people who gave a video interview like Vox Pop to Deutsche Welle were charged with, uh, something that's called discrediting the armed forces of the Russian Federation. So that's, you know, saying something about the war that that's not flattering to the war. And those people were tracked down, I guess, using facial recognition because they they didn't give their names and, and they were charged, you know? So, so we would very frequently have discussions about how do we mm, continue to do journalism in such an environment, you know? Then I think a month after that, you know, there was a man on the Moscow Metro who was just reading his phone and he was taken in by the police, uh, because his neighbor denounced him for having something sort of pro-Ukrainian on his phone. I don't know exactly what it was. So, you know, it was a very tense environment. And only by by sharing this information 
kind of were we able to to talk to to figure out how we would go about our work but you know for Evan and also for me and for others uh what we cared about most and what we focused on most was how to make sure that none of our reporting harmed the people that chose to talk to us whether those were yeah. people in the street or whether those were sources you know there was always this feeling that the real danger is to them rather than rather than to us journalists with you know accreditation from the foreign ministry and and this will begin to get into Evan's story but i mean you mentioned that the harassment pick, picks up when you leave moscow Whereas, you know, Moscow, I think they like to keep this appearance that it's this, like, you know, cosmopolitan capital. I mean, I've but, also like, been photographed in broad daylight talking to sources at Moscow restaurants with a with a, with a a person who fits the profile 100% of belonging to the security services, yeah. just sitting behind me with their phone, like, you know, right in, right in my face. So, so I, that, I guess that's... it's intensified a bit. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take Let's a tangent here. do that before the war. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take a quick tangent here to tell you a story, which is that uh, I, when I was doing the negotiations with the Cubans uh, when I was in government, I was meeting the Cubans in a hotel in Canada once, and I, I went to check in, and this two, this very conspicuous couple, tattoos, like just really stood out, walked up to me, stood about um, three feet from me, very close, took out an iPhone and just started taking pictures of me. <laughs> and I'm sure, certain it was the Russians. It's a weird tactic that they have. Like, we we want you to know we're watching. But I guess what I was getting at is like, you know, what what do you think they don't want the world to know? Like, it, it seems like if there's sensitivity to going outside of Moscow and, and, and with Evan, it was, per, you know, maybe reporting on the Wagner Group, but it might also be reporting on just public sentiments out in the provinces. Like, what is your sense of, what is this about? Is this that they don't want the world to know certain things that are uh, only available to reporters who can get out and talk to people? I mean, believe me, this is, um, you know, this is a, a constant source of conversation in the last 13 days. Um, among our friend group, among other correspondents, among other people who, who, you know, follow Russia. Um, you know, I think in part it's, uh, it's a systemic extension of this kind of need to completely control the message, right? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. at a time when the state is doing things like relieving a single dad of custody over his 12 year old daughter because of things he wrote on social media um, or because of something she, a picture she drew in school, you know, or, or accusing, you know, a 19 year old college student of supporting terrorism for an Instagram post, you know, Evan was still trying to do incredibly ambitious and incredibly difficult reporting. Um, I think that is pretty annoying to the security services. Um, I, I, you know, I, I I hesitate to speculate on on what what they're really thinking, right? You know, there's a there are many people who think that they are looking for 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 people to um, use in a potential exchange for for the many Russian spies that have been getting arrested in the recent weeks and months. Um, but you know, again, I don't I don't want to speculate on those on on that. But but I think it's it's just for me it's incredibly heartbreaking because you know there was already so few american journalists in russia you know like 
Of course, it's a very difficult assignment, you know, to be a reporter from from what Russia calls an unfriendly country, you know, from a country that, you know, foreign ministry says they're de facto fighting a war against. Uh, but at the same time, you know, America with its role in the world and, and, and Russia, the biggest country in the world, like need to find some understanding. And I think that, you know, having people on the ground providing a nuanced picture of the country go, contributes a lot to that. And it's a, it's very, very upsetting um, to think about just, you know, it's already become so much harder after one year of the war to, to, to figure out what's going on in Russia and to report about the war. Um, and, and I, I, I you know, I don't want to even think about what will happen, you know, the longer, the longer this goes on, you know, but, but I mean, I think Evan, is an incredibly resourceful, incredibly talented, inc- fluent in Russian, and um, creative journalist. And I think that uh, that's not that's not something mm, that the Kremlin appreciates, to put it mildly. Yeah, I mean, well, let's talk about Evan for a moment here. I mean, what you you know, you guys are colleagues in a way, uh, even if you work for competitive papers, and you clearly know him well and. Um, what's it like to see him, you know, we've, you've covered, you know, people arrested and you see the, the footage of, uh, them being taken into custody and you see, you know, the, the kind of Potemkin legal proceedings begin. What's it like to watch that and see someone, you know, like Evan, like what, what do you, when you see those images of him, what, what do you think is going through his head? Like, like he must've obviously known the risks. Like how, how do you. What do you see when you see your friend? I still have a hard time articulating it, you know, with some other friends who were also close to Evan. A few days ago, we were talking about the way that we were, you know, zooming in, you know, there's, 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 there's not very much footage, you know, there's basically one photo of him in his coat, which I've just seen him wearing, you know, days before his arrest. It's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly hard to watch and it's incredibly scary. Um, and it's infuriating. And I think, you know, mm, I just, the only thing I can think of is that I, that I hope he, he can get home very soon. And, 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 you know, (laughs) knowing Evan as I do, I, I pretty much think he, um, What can I say? I think he's just frustrated that he can't be covering Russia right now. And instead he's stuck, you know, aside from the whole ordeal, you know, but I think it's, it's, it, it is, you know, I've spent, I've gone to a lot of trials in the past year, uh, for people who have been accused of pretty trumped up charges. Um, and, and this is the first time for me that, that I've been, been personally affected. And you just see how it, it completely destroys like, an entire circle of people, everybody who's, 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 you know, Evan's family, his friends, all the people that care about him, you know, like hundreds and <laughs> thousands of people, you know, who studied with him, who, you know, who, who can't really do very much besides think about how to get him free. And I, I do wonder about, you know, how that just gets, re- is being replicated on a, on a very large scale at this point in, in Russia with uh, political prisoners. Um, also with people who were not uh, 
you know, actively engaging in politics, but simply, you know, thought that they could still share a joke on the Internet. Yeah. Well, you know, they you you said, uh, understandably, you're not going to speculate about motivation. I mean, the, clearly the Kremlin does things for for a reason or multiple reasons. And th they charged him with very serious charges. Right. This is not like a Brittany Griner circumstance. You know, this is equating him with a spy. Yes. Um, although they changed the laws. um just before the war started to really broaden the definition of espionage, right? So it's, yeah. it's incredibly broad at this point. It's sort of even, and, and even if you don't pass information, for instance, to another, um, to, to any government or any other party, you know, having any knowledge of like essentially the military industrial complex or any knowledge of the military or it, it, it's, it's so incredibly broad that, that that so much can fall under it. I, I just don't want to overstate. I wish I could be a yeah, more specific. No, that's a good point. No, I just I don't want to overstate that it's, yeah. you know, I mean, they have the, in their statement, of course, they said that he was doing this in the orders of the U.S. But but the way that they have rewritten the law was, you know, precisely to be able to um, to apply it to, to, to any number of actually quite petty offenses. Or yeah. things that and, things. That, sorry, I shouldn't even say petty offenses because it's actually just the normal anything type of that job they my my yeah. colleagues, you know, would do anywhere in the world. No, it's like it's not unlike you know the the national security law in Hong Kong, right? Which is like nobody quite knows what it is. Like you talking to a foreigner could get you thrown in prison. But the so I, but the question I had is like they may obviously try to leverage this for exchanges, spies, like you said, but also like they they have to know that Western media outlets are now, everybody's going to be thinking about like uh, whether or not it's safe to report there. Do you think it's safe for people to report there? And, and, and do you think, again, I, you, know, you don't have to answer it, but like the, the, their, it, that their part of their motivation may be that they don't want anyone reporting there? Well, I, I think this has certainly had a chilling effect, right? Every single journalist sitting in Moscow has been uh, talking to each other, talking to their editors, trying to determine the risks and also trying to find, you know, some reason why they maybe are safe, right? You know, different European, uh, different European people from different European countries think, oh, well, like our country doesn't do exchange, so I'm not a target or maybe I just won't look into these certain things or, but I think that what we've seen <laughs> over the past 14 months and more is that we're dealing with an incredibly unpredictable apparatus. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I remember before I went back, I, I, it went, I felt that Russia was more dangerous than Ukraine. If I, I you know, I don't want to offend anyone, but like, you know, and you, if you are going to cover the front line in Ukraine, you prepare for it. You have a security team, you have, you know, protective gear, you hopefully have someone with you who, who knows how to do, you know, proper first aid and you're primed for it. And in Russia, you know, and then you limit your exposure. Um, and in Russia, it's just very unpredictable. You know, Evan was able to do incredible reporting since he came back in July without without any hindrance. And now all of a sudden, you know, he's being taken away from a barbecue restaurant with a sweater over his head. Yeah. And that's what's so scary is you don't know what the thing is, right? That, that you know, why is something totally normal one day and then the next day you're in prison? 
Um, and, and, you know, we've seen Russia do this in the past, like demonstration cases to, to, to more broadly chill. I wanted to ask you about Russian opinion, uh, which you've covered, because it, it's such a black box. And, and the, you know, the first, the, the kind of uh, elimination of Russian independent media kind of silenced uh, a portion of that. Obviously, the political opposition with Alexei Navalny in prison has been pushed out of the country. We just don't have a good handle on what Russians think <laughs> um, of, of this war. Um, what, what is, uh, I think, what I is think your... I think nobody, you know, they certainly don't want us to. Yeah. Well, no, that's my question is like, what do you, what do you think is the, the what, what is the more nuanced version, you know, between like uh, Russians are kind of mindlessly going along with this because they worship the state or they like Putin. And they, but that's clearly not my experience of Russians, but I'm aware that the Russians I know are, you know, basically the liberal opposition. So uh, what is your sense of, uh, what, of what people don't know about uh, Russian opinion about this war? Well, I think it's it's really mixed. And, and, and you know, my conversations with, with ordinary Russians that I would encounter were always, you know, have been some of the most enriching and, and fascinating uh, part of my reporting. Um, you know, and, and we would discuss with, with Evan quite a lot and with other friends that, uh, you know, while there was certainly... You know, I mean, there's there are several groups of people, right? About twenty percent of people admit to pollsters that they don't support the war, um, which is already saying something. You know, a much smaller yeah. percentage of those people are out protesting, um, bringing flowers to a Ukrainian monument in Moscow, um, trying to engage in, in certain acts of of um, civil disobedience. Uh, you know, and 20,000 people were detained, you know, since, uh, since last February for, for protesting against the war in their, in various ways. Um, so, you know, this is not an insignificant number. Um, and then there are also a group of people who seem to not really know what they think and who seem, who have seemed to given the higher, the decision making to, to, uh, to a power that, you know, they believe is more informed than them. And, but there isn't, there is also another trend in society, which is, um, people, especially in this information vacuum, uh, becoming more and more supportive, you know, the more, you know, as, as Russia becomes ever more cut off from the West, um, and as, you know, as information, as access information is kind of more and more tightened, um, you know, some people, and maybe just because some people are like that, um, you know, people are feeling the rally around the flag effect, you know, and this applies. I, I did some reporting recently in the city of Rizan, uh, where there's an elite paratroopers uh, training school. And, you know, I went to the cemetery, I talked to the mother, you know, and she's, you know, she was upset that, that the invasion wasn't prepared very well. She was upset that her son died. She didn't question the premise of the invasion. She wasn't angry that that it was happening. Well, that was my yeah. That was what I was going to ask you though. Like, so okay, you've got you know there are people who oppose the war, but then there's this question of there might be people that completely accept the premise of the war. You know, completely usually defer to the state on matters, and yet maybe their loved ones are dying, or maybe they're worried about another round of mobilization, or maybe just things are getting worse. I mean. What what should we watch for in terms of cracks among opinion that is not uh you know uh 
against the war for the reasons we would want them to be against the war, but may just like there there may be fatigue or or frustration or or the loss of a loved one. Like, what are there things we should watch for uh, to to get? Because usually people watch for things like protests, but that's going to be very hard in the 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 kind of police state you describe. Like, what do you look for? What would you counsel people to look for? as as metrics uh you know that of whether that's happening or not well for instance one metric is um there's been a 50 percent uh spike i heard yesterday on the russian news in 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 in, in interest in vpns you know the state is yeah. trying to to crack down so much on on uh, access to information and to the internet and people are 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 actually hungry to 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 get VPNs and you know there's always a concept we were in our like group chat with Evan and we were always like what's going on with this VPN what's going on with that one you know it was it, it was like a game of whack-a-mole constantly to, you know and 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 there so there are people who who are hungry for information um there are people who have been brave enough to you know put videos of themselves complaining about the conditions that their husbands and sons are being treated in at the front um but you know i think i think it's going to take a long time you know it took a long time uh for resentment uh the soviet invasion of afghanistan to really bubble up and you yeah. know part of that is what the nobel prize winning Belarusian author Svetlana, Svetlana Alexievich, you know, noted as this need for, you know, if your son is going to die, you need to feel like it mattered. You need to feel like it was important. And that yeah. in some ways that's, that's drawing people further because they've, you know, they've had to make sacrifices, whether it's that, you know, the prices have, have gone up, um, and they can afford less, you know, or, um, they, they're not getting as good benefits now from the government or the health system is struggling. Um, you know, I think people want to feel like it's worth it. And, and a lot of people, you know, separately uh, actually blame the West and not, and not Putin for that. And, you know, they, they often show it to me as evidence that the West has always hated Russia and sought to destroy it. And, and they are really people who, who are happy that, uh, that, that Putin is defending them against, you know, defending them against it and, and asserting himself. Yeah. Against the West. Yeah. Well, look, l- last question is just uh, like what we've talked a, a good bit about Evan. I think you've given us a sense of, of how dogged he is as a reporter. I mean, is there anything else you would want people to know about him as a person as they're watching the story and, and, and thinking about uh, about him? He's just really funny. He's cool. You know, he's very, you know, he's just he's a he's an all American kind of kind thoughtful i don't know like he has an energy and and a warmth and a a charisma you know that like anybody listening like he would befriend you you know this is the kind of guy that he is and i I hate to think of him now um not not being able to be social and, and and have fun you know he's the kind of guy when you come to moscow and say like Man, I don't know anyone. I don't, I'm not even in, you know, a, a group chat for correspondence. He makes you a group chat, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then yeah, proceeds yeah. to, 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 to talk to you. I'm, I, um, you know, I'm sort of still at a loss for, for, for what I could say other than that he's just, he's a very, he's, he's, he's an incredible friend. Um, and very, and a very brave guy. And the most important thing actually is, you know, 
that that he really loves he really loves his job you know he this is like this job is exactly his dream and i think that he you know he really wanted um and wants you know he it was it's important for him that people care about this story and it was important it's every story he put he puts a lot of work into them um in order to make it alive for people you know because if this is going to end you know and it and it will end um you know what happens inside of russia is going to play a big role in that and you know yeah. he took this risk you know to keep all of us better informed about it and i think now we owe it to him to to get him out yeah well look, that's a great note to end on people should definitely follow you uh follow your work and and uh like wherever you end up uh we hope you stay safe and and uh we'll obviously be hoping the same for evan so thanks so much for joining us thank you very much for having me thanks again to valerie for joining the show uh, ben, I'm supposed to say at the end of each episode, follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and subscribe to Pod Save the World on YouTube for access to full videos of this show and exclusive content, like the really awesome video, I don't know if you've seen this yet, of you and Wally Adiyamo talking about sanctions. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. really they, great. Yeah, actually, check that out, because yeah, Wally breaks shit down, man. Uh, and he did some extra sanction explaining. Yeah, like uh, people it, should definitely check that if out. If you ever heard the word sanction and not known what the hell it is and wondered, check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube page. We should give Wally like a whole, not that he has, doesn't have better things to do, but he could have like a whole podcast on sanctions when he leaves treasury. You know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, just come break it down. How old is he? he he's embarrassingly young. He looks uh, really young. Yeah, yeah. Uh, embarrassingly like, I mean, because it's embarrassing For how much us. he's accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, Wally's, uh, he's not, I mean, he's kind of in our neighborhood. Okay. That way. All right. Well, listen, I feel stupid now. But listen, check it out, Positive World on YouTube, uh, and uh, leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Yeah, it makes us feel good. Cool. Thanks for listening. Positive World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. Hold up. 